Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Amid a storm of digital disruption and competitive pressures, companies are embracing the need for creative thinking. But what makes for a creative office? Andrew Hill, our management editor, discusses how to foster creativity in the workplace with FT columnist Polita Clark. Polita, your article has the headline about how modern offices are killing our creativity. Are they killing our creativity? And if so, how? Well, I think in some measure they are. The FT, as you well know, Andrew, suffers from a deluge of books on creativity. At any given moment, we have a lot of them coming into the office. And one came in the other week called How to Steal Fire by Roger Maverty, an ad man, and Stephen Bailey, the design guru. And we thought it might be interesting to invite one of them in to see if they could impart any wisdom about creativity, which has become a topic of increasing interest and concern amongst business leaders, business executives. There's a real hunt on to try to foster creativity. So we decided to ask them in and Roger Maverty came in, spoke to us. You were there. And the intriguing thing was I found that he had a lot of interesting ideas for fostering creativity, but almost none of them seemed to be remotely compatible with the modern office, starting with the idea that in order to promote creativity, it's a good idea to be alone. Solitude is a really great thing. And he had quite a few interesting examples, like Sir Isaac Newton came upon some of his great thoughts about the theories of gravitation when he had to spend nearly two years stuck away at his house in Lincolnshire because Cambridge University, where he was going, was shut down by the plague. That seems a drastic solution to introducing more creativity. As, I mean, as we know, we're not going to get two minutes of solitude in the office, let alone two years in which to do our great thinking. This is the thing. I mean, it is really difficult in open plan. And so many offices now are open plan. In fact, something like 49% of offices in the UK in particular, where, of course, in London in particular, we have very high property costs. Something like 49% apparently are open plan. But even globally, I think about 23% are supposedly open plan and about double that, a mixture of either open plan or private. So increasingly finding space at work where you can sit quietly without being distracted by anybody or anything becomes really difficult. And yet solitude is seen, and I actually personally think this is correct, for me, I really enjoy being able to secrete myself away somewhere and really focus in on doing an article. I know because we sit quite close to each other that you don't feel quite the same way. I think you're better at ploughing on, sticking on the headphones and ploughing on with a piece than I am. Yeah, I think I may be, of the two of us, probably more pro-open plan than you are, or less anti-open plan. I increasingly do feel that there are these distractions at work. I mean, the point at which things are created, for me, is usually in discussion with people that I'm interviewing or in reading something that is particularly inspiring. It's actually then the point of writing where I feel that there's this need to get a bit away from people, or at least to avoid distraction. And the headphones are the only solution. We are going to find this particularly pressing when we move to new offices. I think we may even be working more closely together. So we're going to have to find new ways of dealing with this. So how do you, Polita, find ways to become more creative within the current constraints of the office? I have my other office, as you know, because we joke a bit about that, because I I like to go... I'm not sure if I want to reveal this to FT podcast no, listeners. No, don't reveal it, because I sometimes I... use this other office okay. as well. But it's another place, let's say, near the FT. As they say in Westminster, it's another place, and it is close to our current place, <laughs> but... 
but it is a place where you can go and be very confident that you can sit and type uninterrupted for periods of one, two, three hours or more, which ideally one would like to think that one could do at one's desk (laughs) at work. The other point that Mr. Mavity raised was, quite apart from the physical design of an office, there's a belief that teamwork and brainstorming and away days are a good way to foster creativity. I don't think newspaper offices in some respects are quite representative when it comes to this idea because we're so daily deadline driven that we tend to respond quite well to quick spurts of brainstorming to figure out what's going to be on the front page tomorrow or on the home page. I think that's right. I think one of our colleagues in New York used to say we're a bit like a sort of improv team. When something happens, we get together the people who know about it and the person who's going to edit the piece and we brainstorm, that's the word, for no more than two or three minutes because there's a deadline you have to sort things out. So meetings are inevitably shorter for us. But Mavity says no brainstorming. Brainstorming just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, he points to something called the Ringelman effect, which actually just suggests that the larger a group gets, the lower the productivity, really. And part of what he's arguing is that group dynamics dictate that when people are around a table trying to brainstorm something, you either get rampant showing off to impress or people are incredibly polite and tend to say, that was an excellent idea, Andrew, and even when it might not have been. So the end result is not really very brilliant or productive. And the same goes for these away days where he says, you know, they're very good for getting to know people from far-flung spots around an organisation, but possibly when it comes to actually problem solving, it's difficult. I will say, though, that I spoke to Teresa Amabile, who's a professor at the Harvard Business School. She said the literature on brainstorming was mixed, and it can actually work in some instances. If you make sure that there's no obvious hierarchy within a team when they're actually doing the brainstorming, and you make it clear that the meeting will only be to come up with ideas, and the ideas themselves won't be critiqued or criticised during the meeting, that happens separately and then there's sort of feedback then it seems it can work so I think that's quite an interesting way to think about it. Yes and that makes me think that there is some solution to this if we assume that the workplace isn't necessarily going to change shape I don't think we're going to head to a return to glass cubicles necessarily although you know who knows the role of the manager becomes that of something rather different they're more like a sort of facilitator of these kinds of interactions so it becomes actually quite important to have people who are drawing out the best from an exchange of ideas no that's exactly right i think it's interesting you use that word management because there's a new book out this brave new workbook by aaron dignan and i think you met the other yes, day yes i did yes and he actually includes something in that that I stole for this piece and it's this simple sabotage field manual which is an actual document that was produced by the Office for Strategic Services which was a precursor to the CIA in 1944 and it's a list of simple things that ordinary civilians could do during World War II if they happened to be in enemy territory in Europe to frustrate the Axis powers and the idea was when it came to businesses it's hilarious because there's several points that could have been lifted from so many office situations today, like, you know, make sure that meetings go on and there's no decision and everything's referred on and you basically just have endless prevarication and no decision making. And it is quite funny to read that. In fact, 
There's a very nice line in the book that somehow in less than a lifetime, modern work has become indistinguishable from sabotage. Although that might be overstating it somewhat, in many ways it isn't. I mean, when you think about what a day is like, when you come into the office, you're all primed up to get something finished and then someone comes over and asks if you can just pop into a meeting because you've worked on something that might be relevant and someone else comes along to see if you can just do this. You can fritter away an entire day very easily, I think, in the modern office. You can, but then I'm going to push back a little bit on that because I think although that's obviously true and lots of people recognise bureaucracy as the enemy of creative work, there is a sense in which I remember in my work that being surrounded by bright, intelligent colleagues who are able to chip in ideas, even at the sort of fringe of what you're doing, is pretty valuable. When I broke a leg once and had to spend six weeks working from home on a daily column, I could write the column. There was no problem with that. And it was very easy to avoid distractions. But what I discovered was I wasn't getting any input from anybody else because I couldn't just roam the desks and chat to people about what they thought about the subjects I was writing about. So I'm kind of in two minds, really. I think I would miss it if I was locked away in a cubicle trying to do my creative work. I'd miss the opportunity then to get together. And of course, that then raises the problem that one person's useful ideas generation at somebody else's desk could be that desk-bound person's major distraction. There is possibility. In fact, sometimes I've approached you and you've had your headphones on and I've thought, shall I or shan't I? And then I do and I see a flicker of annoyance sometimes. (laughs) A flicker of annoyance. Well, I feel (laughs) reproached now. But I think perhaps we need some kind of signalling system. And I think this exists in some startups and other offices where you can indicate whether you are available or unavailable in some passive way. I've always thought that headphones should have some kind of red flashing light on them to indicate that we can't be disturbed rather like we have in this studio to show that we're recording rather than just chatting. Well, that's true. I mean, for some people, of course, just the act of putting the headphones on is enough, as we know, and I'm afraid I'm bad at respecting that. But you make an interesting point, and in fact, some of the people I spoke to for this piece were saying that, look, it's really important to be able to go around when you're in the process of just figuring out the dimensions of a problem or trying to understand how something works. But where you do need to be isolated, really, is when you're trying to figure out how to solve it. And so I think it's very true. I mean, I too enjoy being around colleagues and listening to people. I actually enjoy being distracted if I'm not on deadline. But I must say it's that act of having to come up with 730 crisp, brilliant words for a column or whatever. It's then that I don't want to be interrupted. A perfect blend for me would be being able to scurry off into my burrow and just sit there and write and then pop out and be amongst everybody when I feel like it. (laughs) So what we really need is some kind of way of creating the boundaries or signalling to people which mode we're in. If we're in receptive mode and we want to be able to talk to people or we're available to talk about ideas, this kind of exists online. You have a green or a red button that can show you whether you're online and available for some social media. Maybe we need that for the office. That might be one solution. Yeah, it might. I think it's very difficult, though. Even if you've got your headphones firmly clamped on and you've got industrial fan noise blaring into your ears and you're really focused, just the act of people suddenly exclaiming about something extraordinary happening on television around you or somebody walking past with a tea trolley. There's so much potential when you are sitting out in the middle of a sea of other people at open plan desks. So much potential for disruption. I think it's quite difficult still. But maybe it would help to have a little flashing light, something we can investigate. (laughs) We have to wrap up now, but I just wanted to finish with my favourite bit of research about distraction, which is that distractions can apparently cause a fall in IQ twice 
twice as great as that achieved by smoking marijuana. So we need to get back to the distractions of our day-to-day lives. Thank you, Polita. Thank you, Andrew. That was Andrew Hill, FT Management Editor, talking to Polita Clark, and you can find a link to her column on the topic in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com slash offer. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.